Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. For more in-depth perspectives and interesting stories, sign up for our daily newsletter at tvo.org slash daily. 25 years ago this month, the newly elected Ontario government, led by Premier Mike Harris, found itself embroiled in a full-blown crisis. Indigenous protesters were locked in a confrontation with the OPP at Ipperwash Provincial Park in southwestern Ontario. By the time the dust had settled, a demonstrator named Dudley George had been shot and killed by an OPP officer who was eventually charged with criminal negligence causing death. What lessons did we learn at Ipperwash, and have we used that wisdom? in the intervening quarter century. Let's ask, from Tequatagamu Nation, a Cree community in northeastern Ontario, there's Roseanne Archibald. She is Ontario Regional Chief with the Chiefs of Ontario. In North Toronto, Michael Bryant, former Ontario Attorney General and Minister of Aboriginal Affairs, now head of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. And in Midtown Toronto, Elaine Todras, who was the Deputy Solicitor General during the Ipperwash crisis and is now President of Todras Leadership Council. And I'm grateful to the three of you for joining us on TVO tonight uh, for an important discussion, which I think um, I want to bring this fact file up first, because 25 years ago is a long time for some people. Some of our viewers weren't alive yet. Others didn't live here at the time. So, Sheldon, if you would, let's bring this graphic up and we'll go through some of the history here and get everybody up to scratch. 1932, this story starts. Ipperwash Provincial Park was created by the government of Ontario on land that had been controversially surrendered from Stony Point Reserve in 1928. In 1937, Indigenous peoples notified park authorities of a burial ground inside the park and asked for its protection. Then comes World War II, and the government of Canada takes the land from the Stony Point First Nation for a military training base. Families are relocated. The government had promised to return the land after the war's end, But 50 years after the end of World War II, the land had still not been given back. So that brings us to Labor Day weekend, 1995. A few dozen indigenous protesters gathered at the park and built barricades to press their claim and assert that the burial ground had been damaged. The province's initial plan called for a, quote, peaceful resolution to the protest. But then on September 5th, 1995, the government changed its plan to, quote, remove the occupiers as soon as possible. And on September 6th, 1995, one of those protest leaders, Dudley George, as we indicated, shot by the OPP and he dies in hospital the next day. Okay, Elaine, I wonder if you'd pick up the story for us because you were the deputy minister to the solicitor general at the time. You were at these very high level meetings in the Ontario government. So, Put us in the room, if you would, at the top. What, what was going on in those high-ranking decision-making rooms? Well, first of all, I feel uh, that I have to say uh, that it's so many years later and we have to acknowledge the tragedy of Gipper Wash and respect the memory of, of Dudley George and the pain that his family went through. I, I think it's important for us to go back to 95, and I'm glad that you set a bit of a context. First of all, we had a new government, Uh, very brand new uh, to be facing uh, a crisis of this magnitude with a doctrinaire set of philosophies encompassed in uh, the common sense revolution with a focus on uh, uh, each minister and each deputy minister was given 
their uh, working documents, as, as it say, and, and in my case, a law and order agenda, accompanied by the general distrust between the levels of government and the civil service, which is what we see in most uh, changes uh, in government. And I think the third thing that's very, very important is the lack of a common policy frame as to whether this was a law and order issue or whether it was a First Nations Aboriginal uh, land title issue. How does the government of the day see it? And the government of the day, well, that's an interesting question. So let me tell you about how the government actually worked in processing all of this. There were basically three or four lines of responsibility. Each of the line ministers would have had their responsibilities. So the Minister of Natural Resources and his deputy would have been worrying about the park and would have been worrying about the safety in the park. The Attorney General's office would have been working on things that had to do with either legal or um, legal matters that that came to their attention. Uh, ONAS, which was then called the Ontario Native Affairs Secretariat, was responsible for chairing an extremely important committee called the Interministerial Committee, which was often referred to before that as the Blockade Committee, and the Solicitor General. So there were uh, a variety of mechanisms that were put in place to deal with all of this. The staff at the IMC would have been dealing with day-to-day reporting and decisions about legal consequences. What's important to state in, in this file, I think, is that the Solicitor General and the Deputy Solicitor General always viewed themselves, and still do, as the minister responsible for setting policy for policing, including enforcement of the Police Services Act, with a very, very clear understanding that there's to be absolutely no interference in the day-to-day operations of the police, whether it was the OPP or the municipal police force. So in that case, my minister, who was a very seasoned uh, opposition critic of the justice portfolio, had taken the view that we were, as a ministry, to be a backseat. We were to listen, but at the end of the day, the operational decisions would be made solely by uh, the OPP. Well, so if I can, that takes us to the most famous quote that emerges from all of this, because it's, you, you've, you've quite nicely pointed out the differing missions that the different ministries of the time had. But then in the midst of all of that, you did have Premier Harris uh, alleged to have said, well, the Attorney General of the day actually confirmed that he said it. He said, I want the effing Indians out of the park, except he didn't say effing. And I wonder whether, and this is, you know, Charles Harnick, who was the AG at the time, testified before the inquiry that that's what the Premier of the day said. What did that do uh, to all of those different competing missions as you saw it? Well, as everybody testified, the Deputy Attorney General and I also testified, uh, we walked out of that room and they were not instructions to do anything. We, we heard the views of politicians who were uh, seized by the uh, the importance of the task, who were struck by all of the different viewpoints and wanted to see something happen quickly. But at the end of the day, that didn't change. That didn't change my job. That didn't change the deputy attorney's job. There were no instructions that were given to the OPP. Uh, as a matter of fact, the day before the, the uh, tragic event occurred, I was of the view that things were going, as was my minister, in a slow and deliberate pace. 
where there would be a peaceful resolution. And so when the shooting occurred, of course, it was I was both shocked and appalled. So I want to stress that from my vantage point and from when I was where I was sitting, there was no political interference. There were missteps. Uh, the commission, uh, the uh, the inquiry led by uh, Justice Linden was very clear about where mistakes were made, where there was lack of clarity, uh, where policies needed to be uh, improved, where there were all sorts of lacunae, not the least of which was uh, what are we or not doing about land title. Uh, but there was no political interference. Okay, good to have that on the record again. Uh, Roseanne Archibald, let me bring you into the conversation at this point. 25 years ago, obviously, you did not have the job that you have right now. Maybe you could tell us uh, what you were doing, where you were, and how you got the news about the tragedy of Dudley George's death. Well, I was uh, Grand Chief of Mishkewa Council at that time, which is the Crees in Ontario. And we were on a conference call with Chief Tom Brissett uh, when the incident happened, and he let us know about the comments from the Premier. And so I find it really, um, you know, I really dispute whether there was political infer interference in that process and whether those uh, directions from the Premier at the time really set forth a series of events that actually led to Dudley George's death. Well, that's interesting, because we just heard Elaine Todras say the premier may have said whatever he said, but the people in the room, those decision makers, did not infer from that that they had to do something at that moment in order to give effect to that. You're not, you're not sold. Is that what I'm hearing? Well, I think it's cause and effect, right? Like if the premier of Ontario uh, issues a statement like that, um, and suddenly, you know, shortly after... Dudley George is killed by the OPP. Um, to me, there's there's a connection there. Uh, I know I know that that's the position of Ontario that there was not uh, any political interference. And I mean, I just came out of as a regional chief the uh, Tyndanega situation, where there were a lot of discussions happening behind the scenes uh, with leadership and with the OPP on how to avoid. Uh, a similar crisis and a similar outcome in Tyndanega. We were working behind the scenes to preserve lives. So I, I think that uh, leadership has a role uh, in these disputes, but they certainly can't direct the police. But something between that comment from the Premier to the shooting of Dudley George, there's a connection. Elaine, I should give you a chance to come back on that if you want to. The record is clear. I mean, the justice spoke on it, so I have nothing I have nothing else to say on that matter. Understood. All right, Michael Bryant, let me bring you in. You are still at this point, 25 years ago, four years away from becoming a member of the Ontario legislature. But but one of your future colleagues, Jerry Phillips, who was the MPP from Scarborough Agent Court, I think, uh, he pretty much grabbed this issue and for eight straight years, pretty much every single day, uh, championed this cause, lobbied for a public inquiry, which eventually happened. You actually called it. Um, I'd like to know what kinds of things you thought a public inquiry could get to the bottom to, of that we needed to know. Well, uh, firstly, the inquiry was going to get to the bottom of this uh, business of uh, political interference. Um, I, I, I wouldn't characterize the uh, Commissioner Linden's findings 
uh, as suggesting that there was no political interference. I, I, that's not my reading at all of the commission. My reading of the commission is that, uh, and, and to answer your question, this is one of the issues. My reading of the commission was that the politicians tried to interfere, but did not succeed. Uh, it, there was no, uh, and and in fact, there's you know uh, evidence that the um, that the officers, the OPP officers themselves, uh, were um, mortified by some of the statements being made by the politicians. Um, the important point, I guess, uh, that comes out of the commission is that politicians should not be in any way, shape, or form in the same room as. Um, uh, those who are making decisions, operational decisions, and uh, that they ought not ought not to be interfering in any way. That they ought not to be saying to anybody, uh, "Get the effing Indians out of the park," as the premier was found to have said by the commissioner. And um, so that was one thing. Secondly, uh, what's the best way to resolve a blockade? And um, the other thing, I think, most importantly, is what can we do to prevent some of the blockades from happening in the first place, uh, because that 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 was the uh, ultimately the issue that was not resolved during the commission and took another 20 years to resolve, which was the land claim itself. But this was all about land that was stolen by the federal crown and never given back. And while ha the management of the blockade and of the confrontation itself is is the focus of it another aspect of the commission to which they made recommendations was that you needed to uh, achieve uh, greater reconciliation to avoid the need for the blockade in the first place and um and and on that front of course uh, in other parts of the province we haven't we, we we don't have all the players together we don't have the federal government provincial government and um, the First Nation at the table necessarily in those hot spots across the province. Hmm. Elaine Todras, maybe you could help me understand something. If, if memory serves here, the park was closed at the time. So, I, I mean, to the best of my recollection, there weren't tourists in there who were, who were vulnerable to uh, whatever was going on between the OPP and the Indigenous protesters. So what was the urgency to... Um, as the quote goes, get the effing Indians out of the park. Well, you know, I, I, I don't have all the files in front of me. I'm trying to remember, I wouldn't have been briefed on. You're asking me to recall whether I know what Sid Linden said. Hmm. Uh, from my perspective, uh, the, there was a process ongoing where there was an attempt by the OPP to actually appoint uh, uh negotiators that would actually have a conversation. As far as the Ministry of Natural Resources was concerned, the park was closed. The park was closed. They had issues that they had to do with water and so on and so forth. But I don't know if they would have felt any particular urgency. There were a number of incidents that occurred on the 4th and the 5th. And uh, there were operational decisions that were made on that basis. All right. Let me follow up with this. I mean, you had to testify at the public inquiry that Mr. Justice Sidney Linden uh, chaired. Do, do you believe that the inquiry effectively got to the best verifiable version of the truth of those events? Yes, I do. And, uh, and I'm mindful of the fact that having been working in the Solicitor General, and I guess spending some time at Baycrest Center for Geriatric Care, where I, where I think a little bit about memory, it is in fact very difficult for people to recall what happened yesterday 
never mind, or at a scene of an accident, uh, never mind what happened uh, 10 years before. But I think he, he presented a very thorough case. He was very careful at the beginning of his inquiry to be sensitive to the history of Ripper Wash and, and the two First Nations that were there. Uh, he went through meticulous detail uh, with everybody who was present. So I think that he captured what needed to be captured. And I think the most important thing we need to focus on in terms of the future is he gave us a blueprint. So when people ask us, well, what do we need to do? And I'm sure the chief feels this way deep in her heart. And I'm sure uh, Michael feels this way from all of his background as the attorney general, as the minister responsible for these matters for his interest now in civil liberties. We now know what to do. And I think the question that all of us have to ask is what's partisan and what's not partisan. So when I look at the justice's recommendations, his first one is about land claims. It's not about the OPP. It's about land claims. And he puts forward a proposal about the establishment of a of a, of a, of a, of a commission. Okay. Let me jump so in here end- because we're going to get to this. You're getting a little ahead of my story still. So let's. Right. So, so my point is we can, we can spend time on the past, but we really have to ask ourselves in today uh, with not only with first nations issues, but with what we're hearing through black lives matters about the role of police and the limits around police. What do we collectively as a society believe needs to be done uh, and that's the question I'd very much like to hear from from, from, from the other participants today. We are going to get there. But, I, but before we get there, I also want to know, I mean, th- th- this inquiry uh, took a great deal of time and care and money to get to the bottom of what happened. And uh, Roseanne Archibald, I guess I'd want to know from you, did the George family in particular, because their interests were obviously at the center of all of this, and perhaps First Nations leadership in general, think that the inquiry did a good job getting to the bottom of it all? Well, I want to talk about the basis of the inquiry as well. It's important to notice that, uh, as Elaine said, that the conflict is about land. It's about, it's representative of every conflict about appropriation of land in Ontario and Canada. And even the name Ipperwash is appropriated. The Anishinaabe name for this land is Azudina. And I, I think that this inquiry uh, is, um, is a framework, is what it is. And did it get to where we needed to get to? I would say that we still have a long road ahead of us in terms of even implementing many of the recommendations under the inquiry. Um, and on the question of political interference, I mean, this is, this is what the inquiry was really set up to do for us as First Nations was to say that there is systemic racism within the Ontario government and that systemic racism starts at the very highest levels and that ignorance about First Nations rights and what was going on in Ipperwash went throughout the whole system. And so I think ultimately it's really important to to talk about um, the fact that we view the, that kind of ignorance as being the basis for how do we move forward? Like, how do we get over that? How do we educate people? I mean, it took 78 years to get the land back. Uh, it was promised to them in 1942. Even 13 years after the end of the inquiry, it was finally returned. 
And I think that that really points uh, possibly to more confrontations because this land claim process in Ontario and in Canada is very broken and it's very cumbersome, very long, and it leads to these kinds of conflicts. And I, I think that if we take anything away from Ipperwash, um, it's how we try and begin to deal with that systemic racism, uh, particularly around how police interact with our people who are engaged in activities to defend land or get land back. Well, let me pick up the story there with Michael Bryant. Michael, as you look back on the events of 25 years ago, 2020 hindsight, obviously, but what might have been able to be done differently whereby Dudley George doesn't end up dead at the end of the drama well if the police are not uh, do not go into the park uh, well no I, I see what you're saying the question is really if uh in 2020 with 2020 hindsight what would have happened what would have happened is that the claim would have been negotiated and resolved and settled in the event that um the first nation agreed to it or adjudication would have take place would have taken place to resolve uh the claim it was you know, decades and decades had passed since the land had been taken by the time the protest took place. And it actually took two, as has been said, two more decades beforehand. So what would have happened is, is that there would have been a resolution and that that land, which um, at the time was Provincial Park, it's now been given back to the First Nation, rightly. But at the time, it was a Provincial Park and the and Stony. Uh, Stony Point First Nation was still a uh, contaminated army camp. Um, everyone from Stony Point had been um, uh, pushed into uh, Kettle Point, um, uh, doubling the population there. And uh, as and the and the situation wasn't resolving itself. There weren't even talks that were taking place. So the that's what would have happened is that the claim would have been resolved and that the uh, the claim would have been settled. The land would have been returned, and that's eventually what happened. Is that the government said, "Yeah, you're right. We took the land. We misappropriated the land. We're going to give you the land back. We're going to clean up the land." Said the federal government, and we owe you a um, hundred million dollars uh, for having took taken it all. And that was the eventual result. We, that was the eventual result, Michael, I, I think about a week ago. I mean, this story yeah. started during World War II and it got yeah. resolved a week ago. Why do right. these things take so bloody long? Well, I, I negotiated the, the claim, the land claim, on behalf of the First Nation and we resolved it about four years ago. It took, I agreed with Chief Brissett in 2007 that the province would give back the park in 2007. And as you said, we gave back the park, which is actually, um, Steve, a, a smaller part of the bigger picture. It's it's a it's a it's a small part of the broader claim. But we shook hands, Sam George, myself, the chief. We announced it. Cabinet approved it, and then it took uh, 13 years to implement. So, uh, and but I'll tell you why. It's it's a lack of political will. That's what it is. It's just a lack of political will. If a first minister says we need to get this done by a certain time then it will get done and in the absence of that political will you need to get it on the front page of the newspaper and the only way to do that is through a blockade hmm. uh, all right let me pick up the story there elaine todras the fact is there have been numerous indigenous demonstrations since Ipperwash. thank goodness nobody has been killed and i wonder whether we have um 
whatever was learned at Ipperwash to thank for that fact were lessons learned that have been applied over the intervening quarter century that have allowed demonstrations to happen and thankfully nobody to die. I haven't been as close. I've been uh, away from the civil service uh, for a number of years, but obviously Ipperwash is uh, imprinted on my brain and I try to pay attention. I would say yes. I think that a number of things have happened. We have an Indigenous Affairs Ontario organization that is charged with uh, dealing with land title matters. Uh, there is uh, There were some very powerful people in the AG uh, that have set up a, 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 an, an Indigenous awareness section and so on. Uh, I think that there is, there's a lot of mandatory training. I think the Ministry of Education has tried to take part in, in all of this. And in addition, and this I, I don't know factually, but one of the questions that arose was whether the OPP's protocol for intervention in critical events and Aboriginal First Nation critical events had been modified. That's a factual question I would have to put to the chief and to Michael, but I believe that there were attempts uh, by the OPP uh, to clean up and, and modify uh, uh, the policies. It's, it's an open question. I don't know the answer to that. I will say this, if I can just comment for a moment on the point that the chief is making about systemic racism. I, at one time in my life, was the head of the Ontario Women's Directorate. And, and I used to say to people that you need to have the lens put into your prescription. I would say the same thing with First Nations. You require the lens, the prescription in your lens to be placed there so that everything you see uh, is imbued with what, what the issues of First Nations are. And just to give you a tiny example, uh, when I was the Deputy Minister of, of Culture, uh, I was responsible for the Burials Act, so became aware of that faction, of that, that part of the story. But I had no idea that uh, until I had had that position, uh, that I had the Archives of Ontario reporting to me, and they had enormous pressure during land title negotiations because uh, people came to them uh, for demands. Now, why am I telling you this story? It means that more than just the usual ministries need to understand what First Nations matters are. And everybody has a piece in trying to deal with what the Truth and Reconciliation reports and other reports have told us to do. So it's it's what I call as a bureaucrat, the all in government approach. So do I believe that some of the steps have been taken? I believe so. Do I believe that all of them have been taken? No. And I don't think we can move past the most difficult one of all, which is dealing with land title. Well, let me get to Chief Archibald on that. Do, do you believe that we learned enough from Ipperwash 25 years ago that the Ontario Provincial Police have changed the protocols by which they handle these situations now? Well, I believe we have made progress. And I know that firsthand uh, because when the Tyendinaga action started, one of the first things I did was I called the OPP commissioner and asked him where this framework was and whether it was gonna be implemented in this case. And that framework really became a center focus for all of us involved in those discussions. We were there to preserve lives, to keep people safe, and to ensure that we did not have another incident as we had in Ipperwash. Ipperwash was mentioned many times during the Tyendinaga uh, process. And I'm sure it also came up recently in the Caledonia situation. And so, 
I, I really want to reiterate what's at the heart of this and go back to what Michael Bryant said about the lands issues and really First Nations wanting their land returned is at the heart of all these disputes. Every dispute you have in Canada is a land dispute. It's a treaty dispute. The treaties, uh, and that's why the Treaty Commission recommendation in this report is important. People need to understand that their wealth, their well-being, their happiness, all of the things that are good in Ontario and Canada are the result of treaties. These treaties are not being honored. And that's an important piece. And it takes more than just political will. I agree with Michael that political will is important. But what's even more important is something that Elaine said, which is education, letting people know and helping people to understand the true history, our true shared history in Ontario, and the true history of this country. And when we, if we continue to ignore this fact and try and pretend that treaties were a bill of sale, uh, then we're going to continue to go down these roads together. And so governments have an obligation to settle these issues in a timely manner, not just to settle them eventually, but to settle them now uh, so that we can have peace in Ontario and peace across Canada. And the other thing that's really connected into this issue is burial grounds. Um, you know, many of these disputes are have a burial ground connection to it. It's, it becomes a space uh, that it is like the last standing ground that we have is to protect our ancestors. And a lot of that work around burial grounds remains unfinished here in Ontario. And more funding is required to make sure that that process goes ahead. So there are, have things improved? Yes. Can they get better? Absolutely. Uh, where are we on the road? I would say we're at 10% of the 100% that we got to go to. Well, let, let me risk incurring your wrath here, Chief Archibald, by asking you the flip side of this question, which is, um, again, let's put it on the record. No Indigenous protester has been killed, thankfully, since Ipawash 25 years ago. Having said that, and we are seeing, you know, we, we, we see this, whether it's the Wet'suwet'en in Western Canada, Tyendinaga, you referenced, there's a situation in Caledonia right now that's been going on for the last two months, something I think called Mackenzie Meadows or something like that, a housing development where where again, there is a dispute. And there are people in this province who believe that indigenous protesters are quote unquote, getting away with stuff that were they not indigenous, if their name was John Smith instead of something else, they'd be hauled off by the OPP and put in jail, but that there is an extra layer of, shall we say, understanding or, or backing off that the OPP does quote unquote, because of the ghost of Ipperwash hanging over this whole thing. What would you say to people who believe there's a double standard of law enforcement here right now? Well, I think they need to be educated, number one, because everything you said is not true. Uh, there is no, um, the reason that First Nations are in these disputes is because they have treaty rights. We are sovereign nations. I know people don't like to talk about that. And as sovereign nations, we signed these treaties with the Crown. And those Crown are, are, the Crown is now represented by the Ontario government and the federal government. And these treaties are not being followed. They are not being honored. We see the Robinson-Huron Treaty case uh, where they won the case that their treaty annuities had to go up. But what has the government done? It's fought this case. It's fought against it. And why is that? Because 
many of the people who are in government didn't receive a proper education about their true history here in Canada. And that's the beginning point. So it's not, I don't find that it's about giving wrath to anybody, Steve. It's about educating people, letting them know what this is all about. And it's always about land. And when governments honor those treaties and give back land that they've taken inappropriately or through uh, nefarious means or through um, deception, then I think we'll have a more peaceful society. But ultimately, everything in Ontario hinges on land. Uh, the basis of all our lives is the, the treaty lands that we are all living on. Michael Bryant, I'm literally down to my last 30 seconds here. And um, you were the Attorney General. You were the Minister of uh, then called Aboriginal Affairs in Ontario. Uh, somebody else has got those two jobs today. What advice would you have for them as they continue to try to make sure that no lives are lost as these disputes hopefully resolve themselves? Uh, firstly, um, the, from the police perspective, de-escalation, uh, as has been recommended in the Ipperwash report, in the Yakabuchi report, de-escalation for uh, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous people in any confrontation um, is the uh, appropriate approach as opposed to escalation. Charging into a park, uh, militarized and sh um, uh, guns ablazing is escalation. Um, so the uh, police shift to de-escalation um, uh, ought to be undertaken from a government perspective. You know, uh, come to the table. The the Ontario, um, the current Ontario government left the tripartite table that existed between the federal government, provincial, and First Nations. Come to the table. Meet with Chief Archibald. Meet with. Um, um, uh, all the, the chiefs of Ontario uh, meet with uh, Indigenous leadership and meet with the federal government and start hammering out some some agreements. And, um, and th that's what I'd recommend they do, just come to the table. I can't thank the three of you enough for coming on to TVO tonight and helping us better understand the events of 25 years ago. Roseanne Archibald, Michael Bryant, Elaine Todras. Uh, stay safe, everybody. And once again, thanks so much. Thank, thank you. you. Miigwech. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is brought to you by the Chartered Professional Accountants of Ontario. CPA Ontario is a regulator, an educator, a thought leader, and an advocate. We protect the public. We advance our profession. We guide our CPAs. We are CPA Ontario. And by viewers like you. Thank you.